Hello, and welcome to the Her Voice podcast. I'm Kamel Caruso, Chief Revenue Officer of HerMD and your host for today. We're a female forward wellness center committed to empowering women through comprehensive health, beauty, and wellness services. This week, Somi and I talked to Tanika Gray-Valburn, founder of the White Dress Project. The mission and vision of the White Dress Project is to galvanize support and promote national awareness about the fibroid epidemic among women domestically and globally through education, research, and advocacy. The White Dress Project is an organization dedicated to raising funds for research and awareness for uterine fibroids in hopes that women with fibroids will be empowered and will no longer have to suffer in silence. So this was a really powerful interview for me, mostly because I did not know a lot about fibroids or just how many women it did affect. Yeah, I didn't even know what a fibroid really was until I heard about the White Dress Project, but it's kind of a funny story how you ended up meeting Tanika, and you alluded to it several times during the interview that you guys actually met on social media, so tell us about that. Yeah, we did. We met through Instagram, and I have to say Instagram's becoming a very quick platform for me to meet some of the most interesting driven, like powerful women who have all kind of, you know, suffered through some kind of challenge. And instead of sitting there and just suffering in silence, uh, they decide they're going to do something about it. And Tanika, she reached out to us, or I think she might've commented on one of our posts on social media. And it was during fibroid awareness month. And we had posted something about that. And I checked out white dress project and I was like, Oh my God, this is pretty amazing. And I started reading about it and messaged her because just the concept of white dress and why she came up with that name, because she wasn't able to wear white because of her heavy periods was like, oh my God. And it just clicked like, wow, something as simple as that was impacting her or what I thought was so simple. Mm -hmm. And it just was so interesting to me. So we connected over social. Like one of the more poignant moments I found during the interview was when she was talking about her fertility struggles and I couldn't help but feel really angry on her behalf because had she been diagnosed earlier or treated earlier like this could have been an issue that she didn't have to deal with and then you and Somi also talked about your own fertility issues. I mean, Tanika and I, when we spoke, she was so open. I, I had no idea the conversation was going to go that way. We had connected about, you know, how fibroids had impacted her life. And again, it was like, oh my gosh, I did not know this about fibroids, that it could lead to infertility. And I just immediately connected with her because I had at the time um, when I was trying to have my second, a 12 year old daughter, or she was actually nine at the time when I had started trying to get pregnant again. And I had PCOS for a long time. Um, and I had irregular periods, et cetera, but you know, I obviously didn't have trouble getting pregnant the first time around. And I ended up having a lot of fertility issues for three years. And so I just connected with her on that level because I went through going on several different types of medication um, to regulate my period and bring it on. And then I also went through IUI, which basically is like intrauteral insemination. So they give you medicine, you're giving yourself shots in your stomach to make yourself more fertile and make more eggs there. And then they basically like 
insert your partner's sperm into you and then you kind of lay there for a few minutes and then like hopefully that will make um conception happen but that didn't happen either for three times and so finally I was told well you just have to go for IVF which was like a little shocking to me I didn't understand like why and there was no reason why it was just you know you have PCOS and this sometimes happens. It's just unexplained. So I ended up, thankfully, the IVF worked the first time, but it was just like pumping yourself full of all these drugs, getting your blood drawn like every other day, checking your levels, et cetera. And then they like harvest all these eggs, um, which is totally not a normal way to do things, obviously. And I ended up getting pregnant with twins, but then only one viable child, which I'm so thankful for. But it's just all in all extremely kind of traumatic and very emotional. And I didn't know like PCOS could cause that kind of an issue either. So just such a lack of education around like it's nothing like fibroids, but it's still a female health issue and had no idea that could impact fertility until I actually started trying to have a child. Yeah, it's crazy because I've known you for a long time now and we work together in the sexual health care space. And I'm only now learning like new details about your story. And it just goes to show how much we don't talk about these issues that impact an overwhelming number of women. When I was editing the episode, another thing that stuck out to me was when Tanika said, that 80% of black women get fibroids. And I was like, oh, that must have been an error. I'm going to have to edit around that or something. But then I Googled it and it was true. And I'm like, that's crazy. And I felt the same way. It's like 80% and, you know, I'm fairly well-educated as are you. We work in the women's health space and there's not a lot of conversation about it. And I don't know why, like women just not wanting to discuss what's considered an intimate health issue because of how they might be perceived or viewed from others. It's such an honor to have Tanika on the podcast this week and to be able to feature the work that she's doing and that the White Dress Project is doing. It's honestly helping so many women with fibroids who would otherwise be suffering alone or in silence. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Tanika. Seriously, through all this craziness, thank you for making the time to talk with us. Um, Yeah. Before we jump into all of this discussion, let's define fibroids. I just want to preface the conversation with, you know, I'm not a doctor. Obviously, Dr. Gervais can speak to this much better than I can. But I do think it's important to um, sometimes get a lay definition, right, Um, outside of a clinical definition because... Sometimes clinical definitions can be exhausting and a lot. So the lay definition and the way I would describe fibroids is that fibroids are benign tumors that can grow in and around a woman's uterus. They are usually benign, but there is a 1%, I believe, chance of them being malignant. And we do have um, some people in our community who have talked about, you know, going through a fibroid 
removal surgery and then them testing their fibroids and them coming back cancerous. But they are benign tumors for the most part that grow in and around the uterus and they can cause a host of symptoms. One of the symptoms being heavy menstrual bleeding, bloating, you can have uh, really uh, painful abdominal periods. And usually they can grow from, you know, very, very small golf ball sizes, pea sizes, to very large cantaloupe sizes, um, grapefruits, watermelons. And fibroids are usually described in that way because they're usually somewhat of a round structure. It's important to note that not every woman who has fibroids will experience those symptoms. For example, um, not every woman has heavy menstrual bleeding, but there are a lot of women who have those types of symptoms. Other symptoms can be iron deficiency anemia, which I had. I had to have seven blood transfusions due to anemia. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot. You can have urinary incontinence. You can have bladder issues. And it's all depending on where the fibroids are located in and around that area of your uterus. And some of the big things, too, is they can affect uh, fertility because they usually are growing in the same place that a baby is, is housed. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I love explaining things in layman's terms or normal language so that people can understand. But yeah, so a lot of women around this country are affected by fibroids. And Tanika's exactly right. Some women don't even know that until we do an ultrasound for something else, for pelvic pain or an ovarian cyst. And it's like, oh, you have some fibroids. Usually those are smaller, you know, a centimeter or less or the size of a marble or less. And Tanika's right. We do compare them to grapefruits and oranges and things like that. It also doesn't just matter about the size, but exactly the position. So if they're growing in the front part of the uterus, they can sit on the bladder a little bit more. They can grow. I tell people to think about the uterus as an orange. And so the inside core, right, where it's absolutely hollow, that's like the endometrial cavity where babies grow. Fibroids that grow there can cause the most problems with fertility, um, can also cause the most problems with bleeding, right? Because that's where the tissue is that sheds every month when we don't get pregnant. The fruit would represent the muscular layer, right? Or the myometrium. Fibroids can also grow there. That can cause a lot of pain, but also problems with bleeding because the way the uterus stops us from bleeding is kind of constricts on its arteries. Um, but if you have this big rocky fibroid in the way, because that's what fibroids feel like when you actually hold one in your hands, it's very rocky and it's not pliable, even though it is a benign, you know, muscle tumor. And then they also can be pedunculated. Those usually cause the least amount of problem, but kind of hanging off like the leaf of an orange, like it's not within the fruit. So yes, about six out of a million can be leiomyosarcoma. It's, it's very rare. But some of the warning signs are rapidly changing bleeding pattern, rapidly enlarging fibroids. All of a sudden, you know, they've been fine for years. They know they've had a fibroid and all of a sudden they're, they're having horrific pain. And just because I specialize in sexual health, you know, I see a lot of the dyspruenia or the deep pelvic pain um, with fibroids and patients will even say, hey, Dr. Javed, I don't think I'm crazy, but I feel something moving around in my uh, abdomen when I have sex and um, people think I'm crazy. And I'm like, no, 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 we need to get an ultrasound, right? Because if you think about it, when you have sex, the cervix gets moved up and down. And when the cervix moves up and down, 
the cervix is like a rudder, right, to our uterus, then the uterus also moves. Our pelvic organs can flip back and forth. They move. They're mobile. They're not fixed like our heart and our lungs. And so people are correct when they say that they can feel them moving around um, during intercourse or during activity. Like I had a patient saying every time she ran on the treadmill, she felt something bouncing around and Mm -hmm. did an ultrasound and it was a fibroid. So um, absolutely. So Tanika, when you and I first met, I'll say met because it was over the phone and we connected at Instagram um, and we just started chatting. You shared your story uh, and also your mother's story um, and how that led to the founding of the White Dress Project. I'd love for you to be able to share that story because I think that hearing that I think would help a lot of our listeners Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. I think um, I agree with you that a part of the reason I started the organization was to make sure that women had an opportunity to share their stories. Mm -hmm. Because I think in sharing our stories is really where the power lies in changing the narrative on this whole thing. It, It is with that and along with the interaction of our physicians and obviously our medical health professionals But it's really, the crux of it is really the patient's story because we need to understand what are the variations in this thing? What's going on with people? How did your journey play out? What were you offered? All of that. So my story starts probably around age 14 or so. My period came when I was 13 and I have never known myself not to have heavy periods. And heavy periods for me are described as you know, changing my pad more than one time in an hour, twice in an hour. And that has just always been my life. I have never worn a tampon. I have always worn at least two pads at a time, two pairs of underwear. It's just never been my life not to have to bulk up like that, right? (laughs) While I'm going along, my period comes, you know, I have the talk with my mom. You know, she just teaches me how to protect yourself, how not to have accidents. But no, we never talked about the flow. Why is it so heavy? Right. And it's, to me, it was just like, oh, I, I guess this is why women hate it so much because it's like this, right? So I just, you know, went along in life. And my mom, you alluded to my mom's story. My mom lost a set of twins before me. She thought she couldn't get pregnant, so she adopted and then got pregnant with me, I guess got excited and got pregnant again, and then lost a a second set of twins. So I am her only biological child, but even knowing that story and then also seeing her go through a hysterectomy, we were still like, oh no, you don't have fibroids. Like, you know, it just wasn't a thing. Like, we just didn't even talk about it. So... Fast forward to like early 20s, I was still heavy bleeding so much. And I went to a doctor and he said to me that they can't figure out the bleeding. So I must be having like a miscarriage, you know, having to explain to your mom, like, are you having sex? Like, what's going on? I'm like, no, that's not the case, right? Anyway, the conclusion was that I needed to have a DNC because they could not figure out why I was bleeding so much. And in hindsight, no one ever mentioned fibroids. I know I didn't do any type of ultrasound for fibroids because now with, with everything that I do, mm-hmm. I, I would have remembered going through that process. I think even my mom mentioned it 
possibly, you know, that she had had fibroids. And he was like, no, I, I think she's too young for that. Anyway, to go back to the DNC story, I had the DNC and my periods were still really bad. During that time, I also had my first blood transfusion. So there just came a point where we were like, okay, what's going on? Like, you know, such an invasive procedure, so young, and it wasn't because I was having a miscarriage. And then now having to have, you know, a blood transfusion, which is also another thing that is, you know, you don't get it if you don't need it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. So yes, fast forward again to probably about 25, I got diagnosed with fibroids and I, I still was just in this state of shock. Like what happened? Where did this come from? What were the signs that I was ignoring? And I always tell that part of the story because it just goes to show I'm not the only one who has normalized heavy menstrual bleeding, who has normalized pain and who normalizes how a period is supposed to go. I remember there was a doctor who mentioned something about, um, you know, you're only supposed to bleed in in the time of your period. Like the cup, 100 cc's, which is the cup they give you to pee in when you go to the doctor. And of course, Dr. Javed can uh, fact check that. But I was like, what do you mean? Like in the first hour I'm doing that? Like, that is so light. Like in, in three to five days, I am bleeding that like every hour. So it was, I remember when I first heard that, like the wheel started to turn, like how can this be? And obviously there must be something wrong. I remember that I used to go to the grocery store and I'd look at tampons like, who could those possibly be for? You know, not recognizing that, no, you're not supposed to be bleeding this way. I'll go back to when I was diagnosed at 25. The first thing that I was told was, you know, if they're not bothering you, don't bother them, which is often a a statement that gynecologists say. And I know in the patient community, we're always like, why? Because eventually they will bother me. But I, I have had enough conversations with doctors now to understand that, you know, medically, if there's no need for intervention, if they're not bothering you, which I, I do get to a certain extent. But the point is that I, I always feel like they end up bothering you. So that was my first kind of diagnosis and treatment plan. And then fast forward to 2012, I got married. I went to a doctor, finally decided to deal with my my fibroids. And by this time, my fibroids had grown out of control. And a doctor told me uh, to forget about it. Just think about getting a surrogate. Just get the money together for a surrogate because my uterus was way too compromised. And mind you, Kamel, this is like six months after I had just gotten married. And I was devastated. Because not only do you think of, you know, being in a new role, a wife, like, how do I navigate this? You also think back to, like, what could I have done differently, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like the idea of I did everything I was supposed to do. I went to school. I got a good job. Mm -hmm. I bought my first house. And now, like, 
thinking I didn't get pregnant. How about that? Right. (laughs) All the things like your mom is like, don't do it. Right. So it's like you seemingly do everything right. Right. Exactly. By the book. And then it's like, you're told this on your first visit. So obviously he offered me a hysterectomy the first time I went to see him. And I was just so devastated because I have always dreamed of being a mother and still want to be a mother to this day. And it was just devastating. Anyway, a month later, I found another doctor. She was like, yeah, you know, you have a lot of fibroids, but we're going to do a myomectomy. Let's get in there and see what we find. So my first myomectomy was in 2013, and I had 27 fibroids removed. Um, that first time. And that was through an open incision. Um, They call it like the C-section cut and a very, very brutal, brutal recovery. It was probably about 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. And I remember the Monday that I was going back to work, I was still so, you know, loopy and just in pain. So it was during that recovery that I thought about what are we doing for women who are suffering from fibroids? And I just can't understand how there are no walks, no runs. Nobody's talking about this. My mom, you know, had complications with pregnancy because of this thing. Everybody I mention it to is like, oh yeah, me too, my aunt, my cousin. And it's like, what? Why so many people? And we're not having national, international conversations about this. So that's where the White Dress Project was born, literally during recovery. And I went to my closet and, you know, in recovery, you're just trying to do all things to to not think of the pain and to not be bored. So I was just like, I don't know, messing around in my closet, looking at clothes. And I realized that I didn't have any white in my closet. And, mm-hmm. you know, I often say that you know, I consider myself like a girly girl. I just love dresses. I love, you know, I'm just feminine. And for me, it was a big deal that I recognized that I had sacrificed something that I love, which is who doesn't love like a Labor Day, summer, all white clothing party, you know, like who doesn't love those types of things. And I realized how many of those things that I had either postponed or not gone to or made up some type of excuse just because I wasn't comfortable with knowing how my body was going to react. And I think it's, it was just a, such a strong moment for me and, and like my wake up moment because I recognize that, you know, all of these things that I had sacrificed, we shouldn't have to for quote unquote benign tumors. So that's when the organization started because I really wanted to give a voice to women who were dealing with this and allow them to recognize that they shouldn't have to suffer in silence with it. Thank you for sharing that, hearing that and what you had said in the beginning about storytelling. And that's really what brings people together, what gives people the courage to speak up and talk about it. But you brought up, and I wanted, you know, Somi to chime in too, you brought up a couple of really big things and issues, I think, with fibroid and diagnosing fibroids that I think we can circle back to even when you were a teenager, no one tells us what a normal period is. And I right. you know, you shouldn't say normal, but like, what is not a normal period, right? Right. Because you, you said you just were like, this is what periods are, because 
there was no like, you know, education or talk about it. And like, so that's why, you know, everyone doesn't like it, which makes total sense. So I'm wondering if we could discuss a little bit and so me, you can help us out. Like what, what is like abnormal or normal? You know, I hate the word normal. I like to say typical or, you know, um, it used to be, you know, less than 80 cc's. We used to say less than 80 cc's of bleeding during your whole cycle is, is normal. And then, you know, I think organizations and medical organizations recognize that most women, including myself, right, don't think that way. I don't think of my cycles that way. We do pad counts or tampon counts or, you know, now there's like diva cup. How much do you fill? But really what we've moved to patient perception, and I really like that it does move it in the hands of the patient. So if a patient is telling a physician, my bleeding is heavy, then we need to listen. And that warrants a workup. It's no longer letting or making the patient prove that she's bleeding a certain amount. If she's coming to you with the concern that um, her bleeding is heavy, it warrants a workup. I think it's crazy. And I had a patient who mirrored your story who had two DNCs before she had an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. In what medical world are we putting women to sleep and operating before we do a 15 minute sonogram that doesn't require anesthesia, that doesn't require cutting, that doesn't require a hospital. And with the accessibility of ultrasounds, that, that's craziness to me. Most mm-hmm. OANs do have ultrasounds in their offices. So why are we not ordering ultrasounds when it's warranted, when a woman is vocalizing that her bleeding is heavy? Is it because mm-hmm. we're not trusting her you know, to tell her story? I, I don't know what, what's happening there. Um, that's very frustrating to me that someone would put you through that before you know, diagnosing you via an ultrasound. Yeah, and so normal cycles, you know, I tell people, they have to perceive them as typical or normal, typical ble- bleeding less than seven days. If a woman's bleeding greater than seven days, we're concerned. Hemorrhage for us is more than a pad an hour. Heaviness is if she um, feels like it's heavy. Bleeding either infrequently, so if you're skipping cycles, you know, that's not normal. Bleeding multiple times during the month, you know, that's not normal. So less than 21 day intervals or greater than 45 day intervals. Um, so that is, you know, all not typical or normal, you know, severe pain that questions came up when we did our thing on the internet live the other night, you know, is that normal? No, severe pain is not normal. It takes your breath away or that keeps you from your activities of daily living. So if you're not able to go to work or school or participate in sports, that's not normal cramping, you know, normal cramping resolves with Motrin or Tylenol and a heating pad. So yes, cramping can happen, but it shouldn't keep you away from doing your traditional activities. You know, I did this TED talk and I talked about this and, and to validate your point, women in this country with certain conditions face an up to an eight and a half year delay in diagnosis. And that is not because women delay going to the doctor or initiating our care. We in fact don't. It is because of these dismissals we get um, by medical providers. And unfortunately it's at the hands of men and women providers. Mm -hmm. And there's a three to one ratio for doctor's appointments. So for a man and a woman, if they have the same condition, obviously not fibroids, but uh, a woman will have to go to the doctor three times for every one time a man has to go to the doctor to get the diagnosis. Um, And because of these dismissals, this lack of research dollars we get, 
lack of female execs and those of us making decisions. Um, healthcare workers outnumber men three to one again, but in executive roles, less than 30% of us are making decisions at the pharma level, at the hospital executive level. So we're not getting the time, attention, dollars, research that we require to get diagnoses, to get new cutting edge treatments and to get coverage for patients. And so the surgery that you went through, you know, you, you described the recovery as horrible. Myomectomies or an open removal of fibroids like she's describing about are actually much harder to recover from and they're risky, riskier than hysterectomies, right? Because we're doing all wow. these hysterectomies, minimally invasive, robot, and some myomectomies can be done that way, but not when you have that many. When you have that fibroid burden like she had, you can't do that. And you know, with a hysterectomy, you're going after the blood supply first. You're getting after that first, and then you remove the uterus. When you are removing all these fibroids that we talked about earlier that can be growing in all these different layers, it's, it's not a pretty surgery, right? You're just really trying to remove these fibroids, these tumors that are growing. And so women have a lot of pain, fevers. I don't know if you experience fevers in the post-op period. And the surgeries tend to be very, very long because you're literally just combating these fibroids and trying to remove them um, from the uterine tissue. That recovery is, is not pleasant at all. Yeah, I did have fevers. And when I think about, you know, how my doctor described it to me and having to pluck mm-hmm. each of these and, and also try to keep the integrity of your uterus, right? right. Which some would argue is, is why I'm having the fertility challenges that I'm having, you know, because of that first initial surgery. And then on top of that, I had a second surgery. So I had two myomectomies. The, the second one was much less invasive. They went through my belly button, but still a surgery on my uterus. So I've had now two failed embryo transfers. And you can imagine that's hard, very hard. And it's, it's very much described to me as just uterine failure, which to a patient, what does that, what does that mean? What is my uterus not doing correctly? But there's no, there's no reason. I have no fibroids in the cavity now. I do have one, I think on the outside in the muscle, as you described, you know, the the fruit part of the orange, um, but nothing in the core of the orange. So my endometrial lining is fine. So I know that that's like a fertility REI thing however it's just all wrapped up in one in terms of my frustration with fibroids over all these years and so you know having white dress project is definitely my outlet Mm -hmm. and really leads me to doing this for women because I know I'm not the only one in my situation and still going through my situation and as I do all this I still have fibroids because the last surgery that I had, even though it was minimally invasive, there was something about if they got the one that was in the muscle, then they would have to reconstruct my bladder. And, and I was just like, I'm not with that. So thus, I still have fibroids. So I think what you're doing is so immensely impactful, because I'm already seeing a generational flip. Like, 
where, you know, I, I grew up in a conservative culture as well. My mom did tell us a little bit, but I had very, very heavy bleeding as well, not from fibroids. I ended up getting a, a um, ablation. But, you know, my 11 year old got her period this year and came to me and was like, I want an app. I want to talk to you about menstrual underwear. Like, you know, by all of us talking about it and sharing our stories and normalizing the conversation and not putting this veil of secrecy on it or shame or it's normal to menstruate. I think the next generation of girls is going to get better healthcare and they're going to be better advocates for themselves. So I love what you guys are doing. I love the fact that so many women are coming forward. Um, it's still shocking to me, you know, the lack of access to care uh, for a lot of patients or the things that they're still hearing to this day. It really, as a, as a woman first, and then as a physician, it angers me to my core that people are still struggling um, and they don't need to, and then sometimes end up with long-term issues that they have to deal with. Like a woman's fertility is a very personal, um, heart-wrenching journey for everyone. I, I went through years of infertility as well. I know Komal has shared her story with you. So mm -hmm. it's a struggle and it's a shame. And I just keep going back to your 19-year-old self, wondering if they would have diagnosed you at that time, would you have had one fibroid or five fibroids, right? We'll, we'll never know because your diagnosis right. was made, what, six years later, right? Yeah, yeah. Dr. Javed, that's such a good point because when you think about if I had known what I know now, right, and even with all the advancements in medicine, we still are in this place where women are like, is it fibromyalgia? And I'm like, what are you saying, dear? <laughs> you know, so it, it goes to show that the access still isn't there, the education still isn't there. And, and you're right, we, even though that still exists, the, the flip side of it is that we are, you know, turning a, a generation over and making generational strides, which is very important as well. Um, so it's having doctors like you, it's having organizations like ours that, to your point earlier, eliminates the stigma around this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Definitely yeah. stigma. And like, shout out to Pantone for making the color of the year just period, which is great. It's a beautiful shade of red. Um, but I want to talk about White Dress Project too, because you guys are doing such great work. And when we had first spoke, you had told me this and I didn't know that your organization was the one that spearheaded the effort to make July Fibroid Awareness Month. And, you're yes. now, and now you're working with the Senator Kamala Harris and VP nominee on a bill for uterine fibroids. So tell us more about those efforts. Yeah, so thank you for that. So one of the things that I knew when I started the organization from, you know, just my experience in the media, I had to do something that would get people's attention. That's why I didn't want to call the organization, you know, like another fibroid organization. And that's no slight on anybody who does. It's just that I just had the experience to understand like this, ha there has to be some marketing in here. Mm -hmm. And it was also my link to my personal story, right? Of, right? of not literally not having any white. Right. So for me, it was important to immediately get like stakeholders and players and influencers and legislators in on what we were doing, because otherwise it would have been, you know, patients kind of on this grassroots effort to share their story. 
And that happens in a lot of disease states, right? So I wanted to do something that would immediately give us some credibility and allow stakeholders and policyholders to know that this is what we're trying to do. So the first thing that I did was I went to, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I went to the Georgia State House and asked the legislator to sponsor legislation declaring July as Fibroid Awareness Month. And the reason that I did that was because I just wanted uh, automatically for us to feel like we had our own space. Like, no, this did not need to be connected with PCOS. It did not need to be connected with endometriosis, uterine cancer, Mm -hmm. nothing away from those things. We have board members on the White Just Project who have all three right? They have PCOS, endometriosis, and fibroids. So it's not to lessen any one of them, but it was just to say that, hey, fibroids is a thing, right? Right. And with 80% of Black women, 70% of white women, if those numbers were pronounced anywhere else with men too, right? It it would be such a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just wanted fibroids to stand on its own and I wanted it to have I wanted the awareness effort and the advocacy to have its own moment. Um, So that was one of the first things that we did. And we did a huge event around that at the Georgia State Capitol. And then subsequently after that, what we did was we went across the country and just got lawmakers to agree to that. And then we proposed it to the U.S. House of Representatives Mm -hmm. and it got sponsored and passed there. So most recently, what we have done is we've worked with other patient advocacy organizations. We're not the only one, but we're a part of the the coalition of sorts of patient advocacy organizations who are really dedicated to raising awareness of uterine fibroids. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things we did was went to Senator Yvette Clark, who is on the House side, and she introduced the Uterine Fibroid Education and Research Act. And that is what was also adopted by Senator Kamala Harris. And we are, you know, so grateful to those two women. For us, this isn't about politics. This is about who decides to use their platform to further this cause, which is so important to us. And we believe that, for example, the Uterine Fibroid Education and Research Act will give, um, I think it's $30 million dollars to the CDC, give funding to HRSA and Office of Women's Health and NIH, all for fibroid research. And a lot of this comes down to sometimes we don't know a lot of answers about fibroids. Obviously, Dr. Javed knows a lot more, but when I think about myself as a patient and where can I just find information about fibroids outside of the generic, you know, definitions, and hear patient stories and all of that, the White Dress Project is that is that place right now that provides that. And we just want to continue to partner with doctors like Dr. Javed, practices like her med, so that we're able to make sure that as a collective group, we have the opportunity to educate and share patient stories, partner with legislators, get appropriations, all of that so that we can build a movement. And that's really what we're trying to do at the White Just Project. I always say that I started the White Just Project for myself. I needed the support, right? Because there was only so much my mom could tell me. And 
you know, after a while you talk to your girlfriends about it and it's like, girl, everybody, who doesn't? And I just wasn't comfortable with that anymore. And I just felt like women deserved more, especially, you know, starting the organization. You hear so many stories. Like I, I used to say to myself, like, wow, I had 27. The other day we had somebody email us about 54. You know what I mean? So it's not to be like, you know, you're worse off than I am or whatever, but it's, it just goes to paint the picture. If we don't tell these stories, then we don't know the variations right. and how much trauma and struggle women are really going through. No, and that's huge. You know, as a gynecologist, sexual health is, you know, my area of expertise and basic gynecology and menopause. But there are no safe places where women can get education about any of this stuff. And you're you're tenacious and you did not take no for an answer. And when you had a doctor who didn't listen to you, you went to another doctor. A lot of women, once they're dismissed once, will not go back and they're ashamed or, you know, they, they're like, well, I'm not going to question the doctor. Um, this next generation, not so much, but if someone's been shamed or just dismissed, and so, yes, we need then uh, resources on the internet. And so where women can get together, they can talk about this, they can look at a safe place where they can Google information that's good and safe um, and is, that is true. Um, and so I feel like that is so imperative to give women safe places where they can kind of research on their own and find out more about fibroids. Because you're right, there is no you know, general place where I can send patients or, you know, or women can learn. And so that's why organizations like White Dress are, are so immensely important and people sharing their story, right? So you're not, we're not just preaching, you right. are a patient, you've experienced it and you've gone through a lot of the, the treatments and have unfortunately experienced some of the um, negative side effects that come with fibroids, right? Surgery and heavy bleeding and pain and fevers, and then now dealing with infertility. It's heartbreaking. Right. It is heartbreaking. And I, I really just use my story to help other women because I know when, even with the infertility, I know when I read someone else's story, like, you know, Dr. Shepard is a good friend of mine and she was just on GMA the other morning talking about Christy Teigen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one good point that she made was that you know, people are often saying, well, you know, well, at least she has two other kids, but it doesn't dismiss, you know, the, the fact that she just lost her baby. Like it doesn't dismiss that. And I think a lot of times in sharing our stories, like we forget how much impact it can have. Like it's, you know, mine, it was 27, but, but I say to myself, wow, if she can get through 54, you know, it, it just, it just, allows you to feel not alone. And it's, it's just so important not to feel alone. And back to Dr. Javed's earlier point about, you know, being your own best health advocate. That's one of the things that is like our driving mission at White Dress, that you should be a partner with your doctor. And I think a lot of times, or, or a lot of people talk to us about this. I've experienced this myself personally, where you feel like, doctors are this like authoritarian like ex you know their expertise is bar none and like you can't challenge anything they say and I would just argue with that a little bit I you know obviously I didn't go to medical school I don't have your expertise 
for sure. But I will say that nobody knows my body like I know my body. And that's why we tell patients, that's why you need to journal. That's why you need to go to the doctor with specific questions about specific ailments that you're having so that you can have a direct conversation. You know, those things are just important in being your own best health advocate. And then you partner with your doctor for the best treatment option, right? So obviously your doctor is going to know those treatment options, but you're the only one who can describe effectively what's happening. And the more we write questions down, the more we share our stories and hear other people's stories, that's how we become our own expert, right? That's how we become like, okay, well, I heard someone talk about the Diva Cup. So I'm going to try that instead of pads so that I can measure, so that I can have a better conversation with my doctor because I know my doctor wants to hear about quantity, right? right? So that, that's how you do it. It's, it's not really, it's not at all to challenge doctors because I am not a doctor. <laughs> I lift my hat to every doctor, but I, I really think we need to get on the train with our doctors. No, and I am always amazed at how many will come in and they'll be like, you just tell me what to do, Dr. Javade. And I'm like, well, no, my job right. is to give you your options, right? And so many women are like, nope, you just choose for me, Dr. Javade. I'm like, nope, nope, you're, we're partners. We have to do this together. I will help you. I will guide you. But ultimately, it's your body. And like what you said, I'm not there with you guys every single day. I don't know what's happening, right? When you're bleeding through your clothes or when you're doubled over in pain, journal, tell me what's happening. You know, there's great apps out there. My 11 and 14 year olds are on them right now, you know, journaling and it makes it easier, right? For busy women to keep track of their cycles. Because if women don't advocate for themselves, no one else is going to do that for them. Because the consequences of not taking care of ourselves and ownership of our own bodies is it's just too much. And so, you know, there are, you know, some treatment options out there, but I think, you know, by you creating Fibroid Awareness Month and, you know, trying to get more funding, it's huge because I was discussing this with Kamel. Um, so, you know, there's a new medication out, right? It's called Orion. Orion. Yeah. Yeah. We're partners with AbbVie actually. Oh, that's amazing. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but right now, you know, the coverage is not great. And that's the case with any new medication. Anytime it comes out, right, it takes a while for the insurance companies to jump on board. But she mentioned right now it's only got like 13% coverage if you look at who would be covered for this right now. So my partner has not written for it yet because she keeps being told it's not going to be covered yet. So, but that's why it's so important, you know, the things that you're doing get us that re those research dollars so that we can get more coverage so then we can treat more patients, right? With a medication that's not surgery, it's not an interventional radiology procedure and buy women more time. So they're- And specifically for the treatment of uterine fibroids as Correct. associated with heavy bleeding, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. No. And that's huge, right? Because up until now we've had Lupron, but we haven't had a lot of breakthroughs specifically for the heavy bleeding, specifically for fibroids, right? Right. So this is a big deal. So I'm so happy that, you know, we've got this option and in some women, it, 
in women, they saw greater than 50% reduction in menstrual flow, which is huge. And in some mm-hmm. women, they got nearly 80% reduction. So I'm so glad that there's another option out there, but definitely need more dedicated research dollars and more advocacy for fibroids so that not only about the diagnosis, but then also, you know, treatment options so that we have lots of uterine sparing, fertility sparing treatment options for women and that aren't so invasive, that don't involve so much downtime, right? Every time you have surgery, right? That's downtime. Um, Absolutely. You know, you talked about this, you know, you're going through infertility still. And I was told that my uterus was too old. Um, So I went through infertility when I was first trying to get pregnant. And then um, I had fertility treatments with my second. My sister knows I called her crying one time because what I was hearing as I was going through infertility after my second one was you have a healthy boy and you have a healthy girl. Like what, what's the big deal? And I didn't lose a baby like Chrissy Teigen, but I was still going through this loss. I wanted more children. And I know that sounds selfish, but I did not feel done. And by telling me that my uterus was old and I should just give up, that was not a great response to me or just telling me, okay, you need to just be happy. I wanted a bigger family. I wanted more children. And so I kept going and eventually was able to get pregnant again. I have PCOS. um, And then I also had as a side effect of one of my medications, my uterine lining kept becoming too thin. And so, you know, I think with women who've had fibroids and repeated surgery, we can leave scar tissue, right? In the endometrial lining. And sometimes that can interfere with implantation. I'm not saying that's what's happening with you, but the fear of repeatedly cutting into the uterine wall is that you're weakening it so that, you know, that's why they'll tell women who've had myomectomies, when you have a baby, you'll likely need a C-section, right? Depending on where the scars were and whether or not they compromised that uterine cavity or got into that core of that orange. So so many considerations when you're looking at treating fibroids, right? It's Yeah. And I think the more we talk about it like this in such a casual way, it not only helps the physician-patient relationship, but it just takes the fear away too. Like, you know, I think what happens with a lot of patients is that if they feel like they have lost hope, like with anything, right? If you feel like you lose hope, or there's there's nothing else that can be done. That's where the scary part comes in. This was our last embryo. So I was devastated. And this just happened in July. So I was devastated. But then I, you know, talked to my doctor and she's like, you know, we can try again because X, Y, Z. We can also try a surrogate. So immediately, like your your hope just becomes like, okay, well, It's not the end of the end of the road. Like I still have my period. I still have my uterus. I still have my fallopian tubes. So it's at the end of the day, you know, God is God, like I believe. So I don't know. Like you, the point is that we need to hear these stories. We need to have more advocacy and all of that because people need to be constantly peppered with hope. Right. So tell us about any exciting things that are coming up or things that your organization is working on and then how our followers can keep up with you guys and follow you on social media. Yeah, so I would love if uh, people follow us on social media because a lot of our communication and a lot of our activism goes on on social media. Like we share stories, 
we talk about pop culture and what's going on in the fibroid space or, or even the reproductive health space. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we do a lot to encourage women to share and to advocate for themselves. I think that the name, The White Dress Project, has really helped us because we're able to be you know, creative. Right. Like a couple years ago, we had a fashion show at Bloomingdale's because Bloomingdale's wanted to partner with a nonprofit, but it had to somehow kind of be fashion related. Right. And, you know, even though this is health related, you know, the premise too is that, you know, you have to, to alter your fashion choices, right? So we've been able to like dip into a lot of other industries because of the way we've kind of fashioned our organization. So in terms of what we have coming up, it's always about storytelling for us. We have quite a few storytelling campaigns coming up. We have quite a few uh, social media campaigns where one of them is called Louder Than Fibroids. And it's going to be a way for patients to amplify their voices on influencers' pages. So for example, a patient would come and take over the HerMed Instagram page and allow influencers to to allow that patient to share about fibroids. So it's influencers who are health and fitness related, um, Mm -hmm. who have an audience, but maybe they haven't spoken about reproductive health or spoken about fibroids. So it's our way of taking over their page and and being able to amplify our voices. So we're doing that. And we have a lot of other great things in the pipeline right now. One of the things I want to share is we're developing an app and it's going to be a peer-to-peer, what we're calling peer-to-peer advocacy app. Mm -hmm. Because what we found is that if you don't have time to make another doctor's appointment or the in the interim, who can I talk to? Like, I'm going to surgery tomorrow. Like, do I need to buy ginger tea? Do I need a body pillow? Mm-hmm. Those things, yeah, you can ask your doctor, but, you know, you forgot to ask her in the appointment. You can't get the overnight nurse. You can't, you know, whatever. You just right. need a peer, right? Mm-hmm. So... The idea is to have peer-to-peer advocacy where we pair people up with people in your region just to share, be a support system for women suffering with fibroids and, you know, other reproductive health issues. I think that's great. I just had a friend who was going to have a C-section. She had two vaginal births. And right before, she's like, give me the real deal. Tell me what it's going to be like. And I think that's so important to hear it from your peer and to get their point of view and to you can ask your questions um yeah very cool and the dis- the disclaimer with all of this is this is none of this trumps your doctor's guidance none you know we don't play those games at all but there is something about being like hey girl like what's up you know what i mean and I, I, we did a post one time about things that you need post myomectomy and it was like you know make sure you have all of your Netflix shows downloaded, make sure you have a body pillow. And it's like just stuff like that. A doctor doesn't have time to tell you that stuff, right? But if I didn't have my body pillow after my myomectomy, I don't know what I would have done. You know, so it's it's just stuff like that. So it's that peer-to-peer advocacy that we're really thinking about. Also, we're doing more on the legislative front and making sure that 
you know, this bill gets passed in the House and the Senate. Um, so that's really important to us. One of the things Dr. Javed brought up earlier was about connecting with residents and the, the new age of, of patients and how they are becoming more vocal. But we are thinking that, or what we're hearing from our community is that a lot of times, you know, women go to the gynecologist like later, right? So 25 or so. I, I feel like I was still going to a pediatrician at like 20. <laughs> and we want to have a conversation with residents to say, hey, when a, a patient comes to you with these types of symptoms, here's why we may need to recommend the gynecologist a little bit earlier. It's the same way we're having conversations with residents about how to talk to certain types of patients and that empathy and all of that that they don't, they don't really get in medical school. How do you talk to patients who don't look like you? You know, all those sorts of things. So it's, it's keeping with that same vein to say, hey, if, if they're presenting with these things, you know, the first thing may not be to, to just offer birth control and say, you know, your period will change or whatever, but it is to go that extra route. And I love that Dr. Javed said earlier that the medical community is switching to patient per- perception, right? So if, honey, if you feel like it's bad, I'm going to take it as serious. And, and I hope doctors will, will kind of adopt that thinking like she has, because I, I'm, I love to hear her say it, and she's a phenomenal physician, but the truth of the matter is that not everybody's like her, you know? And there's so many patients who don't interact with, uh, with doctors like Dr. Javed. So there's, dismissal is still happening. Right. Uh, racial inequity is still happening. So that's why we need to talk about this stuff so people know. I think you are so brave. I'm so sorry for everything you've been through, but I'm glad you flipped the script on your um, diagnosis and have advocated for yourself and you're advocating and empowering other women. I love that. Komal told me how you guys bonded over social media and then she was telling your story, but I didn't, I told her, I'm like, I don't want to hear it all. I want to hear it, you know, the day that we actually are face to face and um, I can hear it in your own words. So thank you. Thank, you. thank you for doing what you do. And I love partnering with you and being a part of this. This is all very, very um, exciting for me as a practitioner and a provider to see these kind of things happening for women. So yeah, absolutely. This episode of Her Voice has been a production of HerMD, a female forward wellness center in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow HerMD on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerMDHealth and sign up for our newsletter at HerMDHealth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends. They can listen to us on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're a healthcare provider who is interested in opening a HerMD location, or if you already have your own practice and you'd like to be powered by HerMD, reach out to us at info at HerMDHealth.com.